the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, once again, good afternoon and welcome. Great to have you with us for the Friday, June 8th edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here every Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, trust it's been a good week for you, and as we head into a new weekend here, awfully glad to have the opportunity to spend some time with you this Friday afternoon. As we do so, let's lead off with an insight into the world of money. With us today is the host of Don't Invest and Forget Radio and the principal of Vitucci and Associates, 30-plus year retirement planning specialist, Pat Vitucci. Well, Pat, this week, one of the big items capturing headlines has been a trade clash that now seems brewing between the United States and the European Union. In fact, they have now announced they're going to hit the U.S. with a $3.3 billion tariff beginning next month. This on the heels of some saber-rattling between the United States and Canada. Now we know, of course, the president has been talking about increasing trade tariffs with other partners like China and some other countries within Asia. What's going on here? Now we're dealing with the affluent countries, Germany and, and Europe and Canada and, and all of our trading partners. And we need them and they need us. It, it's a symbiotic relationship that demands fairness and just shows you politicians are not good business people. They just have not acknowledged our level of consumption worldwide. And we've made China rich. We've made Russia rich. They're quickly going to be the largest industrial complex on the planet. Thanks to us and our debt levels have been $22 trillion in, in debt. It's unsustainable. You have guys like Howard Schultz coming in, the Starbucks guy saying, wait a minute, that's not sustainable. And he's not selling like a Democrat, although he is a Democrat saying, where's the money coming from? How can you afford that? So we've got an up-and-coming potential Democratic candidate asking very logical questions that these politicians heretofore were claiming, oh, we can give this away and give that away and forgive the trillion dollars of student debt and make college free and health care free and everybody get some Mercedes-Benz too. Why not? Sure. So we're seeing some sensibility with some of these non-politicians coming into the political world. These numbers are heart attack serious and $22 trillion. The debt on that is going to be 5 or 6 or 7% of the budget, and that numbers will go up dramatically. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out these patterns of behavior are going in the wrong direction. So I think they will come to some negotiated settlement. Neither side can afford to keep charging each other. 
we'll see how all this plays out, Craig. Do you think part of this is just retaliatory when we hear things like Mexico saying they're going to impose tariffs against U.S. exports to the tune of $3 billion? And, of course, Canada responding in kind by saying, well, we're going to add and retaliate tariffs by adding 25 percent on some $13 billion in U.S. products. It's easy to say that, but at the end of the day, that's also going to do damage to consumer prices in their own countries, won't it? There's no question. But now we're talking about tariffs on denim, oranges, bourbon. That's going to give you a whole lot more cost. You're going to have to go down to the Costco brand uh, bourbon, I think. I'll have to start stocking up like we did for Prohibition. (laughs) Well, it'll be fascinating (laughs) to see how all this this plays out. While it's going to take a season for all of the negotiating to take place, there is one area that We've seen this coming, and for the longest time, Congress has consistently been inactive at any level in addressing it. Now you're wondering if maybe perhaps the chickens are quickly going to come home to roost. It was announced this week by the Social Security Administration that this year it's expected to dip into their reserves, part of this to deal with a challenge they're having in income. And in fact, it's the first time since 1982 that they had to dip into their reserves And, of course, this is coming sooner than expected, even to the point of predicting that by 2034, the trust fund will be entirely depleted. Once that happens, Pat, what happens to the huge population of baby boomers that are reliant upon Social Security? Well, the good news is when all the baby boomers have passed on, there will be a giant surplus. How's that for something to look forward to? 2034, the average boomer will be about 84, 85 years old. They live 16 more years, live to be 100. That's going to put further um, damage on that Social Security deficit. But it's all a matter of this is boomers are retiring 10,000 a day hitting age 65. Yes, some will, will wait till they're 70 to take withdrawals, but a lot of them are taking it at age 62. And that's why we're seeing this depletion of the accounts. And now they're going into the reserve fund. I don't see a good end to this in in sight. Congress has got to be a little bit more assertive in saying, okay, you're 25 years old. The new retirement age is 70 or 72. This 65 or 66 in five months. And they're increasing it way too mildly. They need to really get dramatic. And if a 65-year-old has life expectancy of, what, 84? What is a 25, 30-year-old's life expectancy? It's got to be 100. I read the other day, a baby born today has a life expectancy of 140. So what does that mean? You collect your Social Security at age 110? I, I don't know. The numbers are getting silly, but you've got to take into the reality that longevity is killing the Social Security system. And it was never designed to carry people for 20, 30, 40 years. And so that's what we're seeing these numbers just go completely upside down. We've got to create a more pragmatic use of both age and amount of Social Security check. We know people inadvertently, erroneously were relying on Social Security to be their sole income driver in retirement. And at least in California here, it's paltry sum to be able to support Uh, any kind of lifestyle, maybe in Idaho or Arkansas, it certainly goes a lot further. But this pattern of behavior and the pattern of Congress not acting quickly enough is really getting ugly. These numbers are really troubling. That's why we coach folks every day about what are your sources of income? What are the complementary things you're going to do? 
to keep your lifestyle and you've the way you've grown accustomed to. And that becomes the challenge, Craig. And this this Social Security issue is just the tip of the iceberg that unveiling some of the disappointments folks face when they're of retirement ages. Oh, my gosh. I have a couple hundred grand. Isn't that going to be enough? Well, depending on what you want to do in retirement and depending on your debt load, depending on your cash flow needs, it may or may not be. And that's one of the key equations we create when our listeners come in for that consultation is, okay, let's take an inventory of what I've got and what kind of cash flow can that create? How long is that going to last? We have some very um, pointed discussions around those critical numbers. Clearly, Pat, things like lifestyle, debt load, longevity are all factors in how much you'll need to sustain yourself through the remainder of your life once you reach retirement years. And I'm wondering, as we hear this news and and wake up for some to the reality that retirement the way mom and dad did, Social Security alone, maybe a little pension, of course, the house was paid off, they didn't travel overseas every other week, and so it was easier for them the expense ratios made more sense in those days where maybe you could sustain yourself through retirement on a small pension and Social Security. But today, as you're pointing out, that simply is just not possible. I'm wondering if there's some kind of rule of thumb in terms of ratios between Social Security and your own retirement income generated through things like 401ks and IRAs. What does that look like? Is there any average out there? Is it 50% of your income would come from Social Security? So if you're making 1000 there, you have to come up with 1000 on your own. If your budget monthly is $2,000, what, what are some rough numbers? The general rule, Craig, is you need to come up with 75% of your current income. So nice round number, you make hundred grand. Your income sources in retirement need to equal about $75,000, whether it's Social Security, rental income, 401k distributions, whatever your sources are, and they're all different for all of us, should equal about three quarters of what you're making right now. That number has gone up in the last couple of years only because healthcare is not that modest little premium payment anymore. It's become a significant part of a retirement budget. So that's kind of the golden rule, unless you've got really some glorious plans of going to Europe once a year, going to Hawaii twice a year, going out to dinner a couple times a week. That will will result in a much different budget number. But if you're going to have some normalcy, whatever normalcy is for you, or it's probably different for a lot of us, but the two dramatic retirement plans, one couple says, I'd love watching soap operas all day and going to McDonald's once a week. That is one budget. The other budget is we go away one weekend a month and we take major trips and then go to Hawaii once or twice a year. We buy new Lexuses every other year. You know, we go out to eat a lot, yada, yada, yada. That's a whole different budget. So we really drill down and look at lifestyle, look at the pragmatism of what your spending habits look like and what your what your expectations are, what you're, what you're used to. I think um, therein lies that deft touch of what the cost of each of those two dramatically different lifestyles means, we're pretty good at putting a pencil to it. After an hour or so of sitting with with a new radio listener that comes in for that consultation, we're pretty good at creating a kind of a pro forma budget of what life would be like should you pull the plug on that on that salary deposit every other week. 
Well, Pat, I appreciate the insights. It seems overwhelming, no doubt, for a lot of people. And when you begin to do the math and recognize what it's going to take to retire, what little, comparatively speaking, Social Security will contribute, particularly when you consider the cost of living of areas like the San Francisco Bay Area. And then look at this mountain of cash that someone has to save over a lifetime to enjoy the kind of independence and freedom that they've always dreamt of at retirement. Just seems like a lot to do. But as challenging as it may be, it's certainly not impossible. If you'd like to find out more, get some advice, you can always reach out to Pat Fitucci. Don'tinvestandforget.com is his website. That's don'tinvestandforget.com. And uh, there you'll find all kinds of great resources. You can also touch bases with him if you have any questions. Our thanks again to Pat Fitucci, don'tinvestandforget.com. All right, time for us to pause here, get you updated on some traffic. We'll come back to more here on the Friday, June 8th edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before um, some, I think, troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America, and that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level, and it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs. Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and most specifically, how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church, and most importantly, Christianity at the core, to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co-author, is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary, and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, You know, everything from vacation Bible school, children's choir, youth church, all of this. Um, Youth have always been an important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important, and yet in recent years there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents, I no longer feel compelled, and they're done. Why? 
Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at uh, regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, so as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, there's a lot that we could point to of what's not working. But that's where we're so excited about this new research in the book, Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults? And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches across, uh, across the country, across denominational lines, you've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing a quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people? Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I, I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or maybe it's churches that have a big budget, or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient, or uh, they, you know, their worship is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people. Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks that we used to do, historically a good job is the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs— yeah. Uh, typically, what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single-parent families, divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're, in, in a way, in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps, in this day and age, made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in in that greater community, rather isolated them? Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much onto something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh. So what, what we've landed on Uh, as kind of in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments 
that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned. We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and I guess there's also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing. Very much, and unfortunately, what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well. But as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, If a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range. Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that part of the service, typically very early on, came and the children were, quote-unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church. And I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that, well, you're trying to block me from something or, or, or leave me out. And, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies. You have to be embedded at a certain time. And we understand that part of this is good parenting. But part of it, I think, lends, lends itself to that sense of, of being um, not only isolated, but almost and, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake. It's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens. Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's, it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation. Uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had, had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of (laughs) we can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents, understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. And they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, And so 
you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service, of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson. And the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice, and often what it costs both generations. But yet, that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing, uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is, with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth, and let's be honest about it, as you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm... Jack Benny's age plus a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that that is inherent to, to being younger. And yet with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that and giving credence to that and acknowledging that, instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation, our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this, Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we, we kind of isolate young people and we, we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion, and, and is the church missing the boat here? Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, and the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, so let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, what we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not, the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. 
um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey, that they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront of their mind. Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes, if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, you can go back to the great generation that fought World War II, and and so on. They say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These young people today don't care about anything, and yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, uh, for want of a better term, do-good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet, better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder if if we couch the impact of the gospel in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself, I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer, and you've just handed me the keys. Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches, we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, when we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations, and different generations never interact, well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it that lines up very much with what we found in our research. And, you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot certainly from an experiential standpoint, to be sure, that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other. Yeah, is it okay if I tell you a short story about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding. And uh, 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old. 
Uh, and Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace, and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of, of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected, and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church, and the church needs young people, and when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing. And you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated, this is not expensive, it's not complex, because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about, and we, we, we can't afford that kind of money, we can't build that kind of program, we can't hire that kind of talent, but wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches, although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact, how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Joining me today in studio, a very special guest. He is the host of a new broadcast called New Hope Christian Fellowship, heard Sundays at 10.30 a.m. right here on KFAX, pastor of New Hope Christian Fellowship in the city of Hayward. And joining us today is Pastor Timothy Russell. Pastor, good to see you. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. We were just having some conversation off the air before the broadcast today. In addition to your responsibilities, you've got a ministry program here on KFAX. You also have a couple's ministry with your wife, Vanessa, here on KFAX. We'll talk a bit more about that later on. But in addition to your ministerial responsibilities, uh, you're in the tent-making business, and that's okay. Uh, (laughs) Paul was in the tent-making business as well. And so toward that degree, you work for an organization that essentially coaches young entrepreneurs in how to get it right. And That's it's amazing right. because you look at such a vast percentage of new startup businesses these days that tend to fail and fail utterly for primarily two things, either undercapitalization or, quite frankly, just a lack of skill and know-how. They have the desire. They might have the customer service skills, but the back-end administrative skills are lacking, or they know how to minister the back-end, but they have no sense on how to deal with the customer and deal with the public or, or maybe deal with employees and HR-related issues. And, and so we see a lot of companies end up struggling and failing because they essentially don't have their house in order. That's right. And I find it fascinating. 
fascinating in so much as what you do then essentially Monday through Friday is not altogether different from what you do in the pulpit on Sundays and on radio in the sense of providing mentorship, maybe a better word is even discipleship. That's right. Yeah, I, you, you hit it right on the nose. I need to hire you to so you can come uh, work with me. <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. So many individuals, they have a passion, but they don't know how to turn that passion to profit. And and it requires more than just making the cookie. Oh, I make a great cookie and everybody likes it. It's I got to know how to make the cookie. I had to know how to have a marketing plan for the cookie. I need to have the right employees to help me sell the cookie and and bake the cookie. And it, it's a whole lot that goes into business. And I am very fortunate to work for an awesome organization, um, Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center, that that takes the time every single day and has been doing it for 32, going on 33 years, um, to help individuals start and then in many cases help individuals grow their business because you'll be amazed how many are out there doing business and because they're gifted, but they could be doing business a lot better if they had the right tools and the right people around them to do the business well. So make it, bake it, sell it, grow it. Yeah. And then the backdoor administration that sometimes, even if you get all the front end working great, then you find out some company that had such a great reputation suddenly is going out of business because the IRS has rolled in and said, well, there's $14 million in unpaid employee benefits, Social Security benefits, and taxes that somehow the company just never got around to paying. Yeah, yeah. And and not even knowing they had to pay it because, like we were talking earlier, um, sometimes we have a loyalty that will hurt our business. Yeah, I, I tell entrepreneurs all the time, Aunt Jenny cannot do your books. You know, Uncle Joe cannot do your books. And though they may have been there from the beginning when you didn't have nothing and they invested that dollar for you, um, to be successful, you have to have skilled people around you that can tell you, we need to do it this way. We need to report this. We need to make sure this is right. And that's building a business that's sustainable. And uh, that's one of the main things we want business owners to know. Build a sustainable business and a legal business. So we have consultants that come in and teach on business law, financial consultants, marketing consultants, because we want it to be a sustainable business. Having your business house in order. That's good. Does that also then translate into having one's spiritual house in order from a ministry standpoint? And I ask that question, Pastor Russell, because I'm struck by the commonality of not only sometimes the struggles that young emerging businesses have, but even young emerging churches may have Mm -hmm. in the sense that, well, the old adage, my people perish for lack of knowledge. That's right. That's right. You know, you Again, you're hitting on some great points. Um, A lot of times when we're in church, we say this is the business of God, and this is God's business. Well, like I said to you earlier, if it's God's business, we should be doing it a lot better than we do any other business. And with that, we need all the knowledge we can get in order to make him proud, make him happy, make him know that he can trust us with what he's giving us to do. And it's not just about getting in the pulpit and saying, open up your Bible and let me teach you this. It's about making sure from A to Z, we're handling the business of God correctly. And I don't want to be one to just lift my hand and say, hallelujah, God is good. But then when it comes to the business side of the church, I'm not handling it the right way. 
And, of course, that can apply in a broad variety of areas when it comes to ministry, not just simply how we, for example, keep the books. Yeah. But but even the way we live out church life Mm -hmm. before the world, where the world can be so quick to not only criticize, but oftentimes see the flaws that we ourselves don't see. I mean, it's interesting. You talk to any non-believer, and they can probably give you a laundry list 20 pages long of all the things that we're supposed to be against. Yeah. And yet oftentimes we ourselves don't even understand as believers what it is that we are standing for. Right. Right. You know, that's a good point. Uh, I, I, I tell my church all the time, I say, hey, um, we we do a great job of teaching people how to be hypocrites. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the church should be a place where flaws are on display because it's the song, the song that uh, I love by Hillsong. They said, my sin was great, but his love was greater. And if we really believe that, then we can come in the church and say, hey, let me be transparent here. Let me be naked here because in this place is a safe place for me to have the healing that I need. And I believe then the non-believer will look into the church and say, you know what? I, I really respect the fact that they're not acting like they have tea every single morning with Jesus because I don't. Um, but my sin is ever before me and that's what gets me on my knees every day and say lord you're using me and it's by your grace by your mercy by your love that you know i am who i am it's not by my own doing and and so there's a health to that there's a spiritual health to that and then i think talking about the things we need to talk about in small groups and in bringing in knowledgeable people to talk about them helps us be a healthy church and a church that's respected by the non-believer, you know, because they can't come in if they don't respect us. Visiting today with Pastor Timothy Russell, Senior Pastor at New Hope Christian Fellowship in the city of Hayward. More information, by the way, available on the web at hope4hayward.com. That's hope4hayward.com. The broadcast, New Hope Christian, heard Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. and equally yoked Saturdays at 12 noon right here on KFAX. We'll tell you more about both of the programs coming up right after a quick timeout right after this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.